Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Chicago Sports HQ Chatter. As always, this is Dustin Reese, and joined, as always, with Cole Little. Cole, how was your weekend this past weekend? Great, man. How about yours? Pretty much, I think I, this was the first weekend that I've gotten to watch football pretty much all weekend in a while, so it was a nice, relaxing weekend, and it's pretty much probably going to be the plan again this weekend once again, because I'm supposed to get... Mm-hmm. Five to seven inches of snow up here this weekend with very high winds, so I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> wow. Wow, that sounds kind of rough. And sticking with the football topic, we'll start the show off with that today, and we'll get into the playoffs this past weekend. Um, for the most part, the games were competitive. All uh, The Packer game was a two-score game, but realistically it was – two big plays. Otherwise, that game was a lot closer than what the score indicated. Uh, Buffalo game was just a defensive battle that went Buffalo's way at the end, especially when Jackson got hurt. And then you had the Kansas City and Cleveland game, to me, I think was the most intriguing and probably the best matchup of the entire weekend. I was surprised that Cleveland was as close as they were. Once Mahomes went down, they kind of made things a different story which kind of leaves things up in the air for this week. And our thoughts on last week's playoff games? Yeah, some pretty good games. Um, like you said, I mean, Mahomes' injury really opened the door for Cleveland. But, um, you know, Chad Henney came up clutch after throwing that terrible interception, and they were able – and the Chiefs were able to hold off the Browns. Um, you know, the and then, of course, you had the crazy wind in Buffalo – um, the Buffalo was it. The Bills were able to pull away from the Ravens, and that one, of course, another quarterback injury. Lamar Jackson getting hurt in the second half, but the Ravens were really struggling at that point. Um, yeah, the the Ravens need to sign him a, a good center because you know so Lamar Jackson's not uh, getting hurt back there because they had issues all year with bad snaps, uh, switch starting centers kind of late in the regular season. But anyway, Bulls, uh, excuse me, Bills <laughs> able to do enough to get the win there. And then in the NFC, um, you know, Packers-Rams went about as expected, I guess. Packers pulling away. Um, you know, Rams put up a pretty good fight early on, but, you know, the Packers offense just keeps on rolling. Um, Devontae Adams definitely won the duel with Jalen Ramsey. And, you know, of course, Aaron Rodgers seems, um, I mean, he's really playing better than any quarterback in the league, uh, you know, not just in the regular season, but especially um, for the past month or two, just been unstoppable. And then Saints-Bucks, I guess the one upset from the weekend. Uh, yeah, I mean, if that is if that was Drew Brees, Drew Brees's final game, tough way to go out. Um, certainly didn't play very well. I mean, obviously, it's it's all come out afterwards just how hurt he really was. I mean, obviously, playing through incredible pain and injury, I'm sure, and and you know he really couldn't throw a deep ball at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, regardless some pretty careless throws on his part, unfortunately. Uh, just hate to see, you know, his career end like that, assuming it does. But, yeah, the Bucks defense 
uh, really stepped up and, you know, helped, helped the Bucs win that game. You know, it's not like Tom Brady played exceptionally well, but, um, you know, Tampa, give them credit. They were able to overcome a, a second-half deficit on the road and uh, come away with a win. And it's funny we should talk about the defense here. I know last week a lot of the talk from the league itself was surrounding the Rams' defense and how good the Rams' defense was and that it could potentially give the Packers a little bit of problems, especially without David Bakhtiari. And then the Rams go the entire game without even touching Aaron Rodgers, which kind of shows you how impressive the Packers' offensive line has been as a whole this year. Yeah. But this Sunday is going to be very intriguing because – the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did beat the Packers once already this year, and they actually handled Green Bay 38-10. to And that was with David Bakhtiari playing, and the Buccaneers got to Aaron Rodgers, I think, four or five times. They picked off Aaron Rodgers twice in that game. I know a lot of people want to point to the weather this weekend as being the ultimate X factor with Tampa being a Florida team and Green Bay being a team that's used to playing in the snow. But then you got to keep in mind, Tom Brady is no stranger to snow. He played up in New England. Gronkowski played in New England. Antonio Brown played in Pittsburgh. I mean, a lot of these players on Tampa Bay, yes, they play in Florida, but they've been accustomed to the cold weather and the snow for a good portion of their career. So going into that kind of an environment, it's not going to phase Tampa Bay. And I just like the way Tampa Bay is playing right now. I mean, Green Bay is playing great, but – this is Tom Brady, and Tom Brady has once again proved that he's the greatest quarterback of all time. He once again proved that everyone wanted to say that he was a system quarterback in New England. Well, he's proven that he's not just a system quarterback because New England was a 7-9, and 8-8 eight and eight football team this year, and here Tom Brady is on the verge of getting to another Super Bowl. And right now I think I'm picking Tampa Bay to beat Green Bay right now. I just think that you look wow. at the same thing that happened with the Packers last year where they went up against San Francisco during the regular season, got their doors completely blown off. And then people expected the second matchup in the playoffs to be different. And it ended up being the same, same thing. 49ers just ran them off the field twice. I expect it to be a closer game this time, but if you watch that, how Tampa Bay defended that game against green Bay, if you watch how Tampa Bay played against Drew Brees, Tampa Bay is the one team that I don't think the Packers wanted to see in the playoffs at this point. Yeah, I mean, I get where you're coming from. You know, a, a key difference in that for me is Aaron Rodgers is, I mean, playing out of his mind right now, as good as any quarterback in football. And Drew Brees, I mean, really, you know, if we're being honest, if it was a normal season, he probably wouldn't have even come back from that terrible injury he suffered against the Rams with all the broken ribs. So he was just never really, never really the same Drew Brees, uh, the Drew Brees of old, late, late, you know, down the stretch. Um, yeah, I mean, that's going to be a tough, you know, obviously a tough environment for Tampa to play in. You know, obviously, like you pointed out, so many of those key veteran players are used to playing in uh, frigid conditions. But, you know, I mean, that that's such a great home field advantage that the Packers always have in the playoffs is, is getting to play on the frozen tundra, especially if, you know, like you point out, assuming there will be plenty of snow snowfall there this weekend. Um, yeah, I mean, but it is worth pointing out, pointing out, you know, it's, it's sort of the antithesis of the – Saints Bucks matchup and that the Saints just destroyed 
really dominated um, Tampa in the regular season, you know, one handily to start the season in week one and then just destroyed them later on in a Sunday night game that was maybe Brady's, honestly, might have been the worst game of his career. It's the antithesis of that with the Bucks packers situation because really the only terrible performance that the Packers had all year um, was in that, I believe it was 38-10, that 38-10 beatdown that Tampa handed them. Um, yeah, really, Rodgers' only truly uh, underwhelming subpar performance all season. Um, so, yeah, now the Packers will be looking to do what the Bucks did against the Saints by enacting revenge. Of course, the uh, regular season game was, was in Tampa. This one will be in Green Bay. Um, you know, and I just, I mean, that, that Packers offense has just kept on rolling. Whereas that Bucks offense has just been, you know, shaky at times, uh, off and on during the regular season, obviously seemed to flow a lot better late in the season. Of course, adding Antonio Brown to the mix, mix is, you know, increased the weaponry on that already stacked, offense and a key thing for them is how Leonard Fournette has really bounced back and you know look like the the Leonard Fournette of old as of late um and of course Ronald Jones you know who's been battling some injury issues he he looked pretty good against uh New Orleans so that'll be key is that rushing attack on Sunday and and we'll see if they can pull off the upset but that's that's certainly going to be tough yeah, I agree. I think that has the potential to be the better of the two matchups this weekend for sure. And that a lot of that is a lot of that's hinging on the status of Patrick Mahomes, which at this point nobody knows the status of Mahomes. Nobody's gonna know the status of Mahomes until I'm I'm willing to bet that Andy Reid's not even gonna tell anybody the status of Mahomes until probably Friday, which I think is the latest that you can let people know when you have a starter out from all indications, Patrick Mahomes has passed all of his concussion tests right now, which is a positive sign there. And if Mahomes, if Mahomes doesn't play and Chad Henney has to go, well then I'm picking Buffalo to win probably by three or four scores, just because there's no way that Chad Henney is going to be able to put up the numbers that Mahomes puts up, especially when you have a Buffalo team that's playing as well as they are. But if Mahomes takes that field on Sunday, which I fully expect him to do unless something drastically changes over the next week or so, I'm still going with Kansas City. I'm not going to go with Kansas City by as much as I might have gone with them a couple weeks ago just because they really didn't play well against Cleveland once the second quarter really started. They had a good first quarter and a good first drive in the second quarter, and after that they didn't play well. And Buffalo, I think, has been playing the best football outside of Green Bay for the past two months. but in a situation like this, Mahomes is in his third consecutive AFC Championship game. Josh Allen's making his first AFC Championship game. I got to go with experience in this one. Mahomes has been there. He's done that. Allen's gonna. Allen's got a good shot to be back. But in this situation, if Mahomes takes that field, I'm still going with Kansas City over Buffalo. Yeah, I think we'll have a battle of the, gun, the two gunslingers in the Super Bowl, Green Bay versus Kansas City. Um, but it will require one of those gunslingers, Mahomes, playing 
on Sunday. Yeah, if, if Henny is forced to start, I mean, as, as clutch as he was on that final drive, um, you know, if that terrible interception is any indication, that would be a rough day for him going up against that good Bills defense. But, yeah, everything I've read kind of points toward Mahomes playing. I mean, obviously there's an element of gamesmanship with, you know, the Chiefs not wanting to come out and say, like, oh, yeah, he'll play. Like, they probably want to – you know, have a little bit of mystery to it, which I'm, I'm sure their fans don't really appreciate. But um, yeah, I mean, but with that being said, you know, I, I'm not doubting that Mahomes hasn't yet cleared concussion protocol and whatnot. I'm just saying I agree with you that you know we might not find out until you know last minute or close to last minute, about as close as they can push it, that he will that Mahomes will start. You know, it's key that it turns out he didn't really. Uh, experience a true concussion. I mean, his symptoms were enough for him to be ruled out for the rest of the game uh, on Sunday. But really, it was more of like a pinched nerve in his neck from that awkward kind of chokehold tackle that that knocked him out of the game that caused him to be so woozy. So that's key because, you know, that's something that um, he won't necessarily have to pass like a, a certain number of tests in a certain amount of time to be eligible to play seven days later. You know, it'll really just be a matter of him probably fighting through the, the pain. Uh, so, you know, I expect him to be able to go on Sunday. I really hope he will. That would be certainly a shame for football. I mean, especially in the season, unlike any other where people have relied on the entertainment football's brought that, you know, you don't have the, you know, the, the star quarterback, the um, boy wonder of football right now getting to play in the AFC title game. So hopefully Mahomes will get to play. If he does, um, I expect the Chiefs to take care of business. That'll probably be a really exciting game, though. Could end up being kind of a shootout um, between Mahomes and, and Allen. Uh you know, Josh Allen will, will have his work cut out for him, you know, uh, topping Mahomes. But like you said, I mean, they've been – the Bills have been the best – have really been the best team in the AFC the past few months of the regular season or were. And, and of course, so far in the playoffs have been solid as well. You know, it's worth pointing out with Kansas City, an odd element of their great season, you know, even though they only suffered one loss if you throw out the – meaningless week 17 loss where their starters didn't play they didn't win a lot of games comfortably I mean there were a lot of close calls um, some games where their offense was surprisingly shaky and just they couldn't really seem to find the end zone as as much as we're used to seeing from them so it's been sort of a an odd oddly great season I mean they they weren't in the regular season they weren't you know, in super dominant by any, uh, by any stretch, but you know, they've, they've still all this time held on to that crown as being really the, the best team in football, obviously the reigning Super Bowl champs. And, uh, we'll, you know, we'll have to see how they come out against the bills. Cause you know, that's with that offense, uh, the Buffalo offense, you know, they're not, the, the chiefs aren't going to be able to twiddle their thumbs and just kind of, gradually wait to, to put up points of course if Mahomes hadn't gotten hurt against Cleveland I'm sure they would have scored um you know several more points than than they did but 
you know, we'll have to see if they come out firing on all cylinders on Sunday against Buffalo. And, you know, if they do, which I I expect them to, I mean, I I expect them to, uh, you know, come out on a good note and uh, eventually, you know, get the win. And watching that um, injury over on Patrick Mahomes, when I initially saw when I initially saw the play and saw how he got up, I thought it was more of an ankle in- injury than yeah, anything. Because if you watch yeah. the tackle, it's like his ankle bent the wrong way. Yeah. So I figured it was more of an ankle injury than anything, and everyone kept saying that he had a concussion. But then a couple minutes later, you saw him like jogging to the locker room, and at that mm-hmm. point, I'm like, well, if he really has a concussion, there's no way the trainer's going to let him jog to the locker. room. Right. So that's kind right. of where I'm like, okay, well, maybe it is an ankle injury and he's just going to get taped up. And then they went through the whole concussion thing saying that I don't even think they said he had a concussion. I think they said the results were inconclusive at that point, which is why they didn't bring, it, bring him in. But I'm actually yeah. wondering myself if Cleveland would have been able to take the lead late in that game or if the circumstances would have been different where – Kansas City absolutely needed points. I'm almost wondering if Mahomes would have came back in. Because if his concussion was really that bad, I don't think the training staff would have even let him jog to the locker room on his own. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that is tricky because, he, yeah, he had suffered an ankle injury earlier in the game and was hobbling around but seemed to kind of shake it off. And, yeah, you're. I agree with you. As soon as – when he was unable to get up and then he like stumbled when he got up, I thought, Oh no, he aggravated. Um, what, and I mean, I, I can't even remember which foot was hurt, which particular time, but I just, you know, at that particular moment, I thought, Oh no, he must've aggravated that ankle injury. And now it's, it's really bad. Um, and that would have actually been worse for Kansas city. Cause if he had like a high ankle sprain or something, he wouldn't be, but even if he, played through the pain, he wouldn't necessarily be the same Patrick Mahomes the rest of the postseason. But, yeah, I just remember when he got ruled out, um, you know, there were, when Tracy Wilson on the broadcast made the official announcement that he had been ruled out, there's still a lot of football left to be played. And at that point, it was kind of like, well, Kansas City is just going to hope to stave off Cleveland and run clock, which they ended up ultimately doing. But, yeah, I, you know, I, I've – that's a tough call. I mean, again, when he was ruled out, there was still a good chance that Cleveland um, could have won. But I get what you're saying. Maybe there would have been some element where if Cleveland taking the lead, it would have been like, oh, well, you know, now Patrick Holmes is okay or whatever. I mean, you know, I'm not necessarily at liberty to, to um, make such a conspiracy theory, but – um, you know, kind of to take Kansas City at their word with that one, especially when we're dealing with the concussion-like symptoms because we know how the NFL's cracked down on that and taken that more seriously in recent years. But, yeah, it was just a strange injury because it was like, you know, his helmet did collide. Um, the front of his helmet did collide with the, the ground pretty hard. But what it really turned out to be was the fact that, you know, he, he got like kind of suplex down to the ground almost, you know, a choke or a takedown, an MMA takedown, and it seemed to sort of cut off the blood flow to his brain temporarily, which I guess is what caused him to stumble around all woozy, not really seeming to know where he was. Um, But, yeah, just hopefully he'll be able to bounce back from that and be as close to 100% as possible on Sunday, and we'll just get a great battle between Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. Yeah, I, 
I think the Kansas City Buffalo game has a chance to be like a forty to forty, forty to thirty shootout just because yeah, both yeah. quarterbacks are gonna go out there and fling it around. I mean, Kansas City's defense is much improved than compared to what they were last year, but they're still not that great. Buffalo's defense is a it's a good defense, but they were a top ten defense last year as a, as opposed to being I think around fifteenth or sixteenth this year, but they haven't really needed to rely on their defense as much this year as in the past versus the Packer game. I think I originally had the game Tampa Bay winning 27, 24, but now that I see what the weather is going to be like, like I said, there's supposed to be snow starting pretty much right at kickoff. The winds are supposed to be around 20 miles an hour with gusts up to 35 to 40. That could be one of those 20 to 17, just defensive matchups where neither quarterback's going to be able to stretch the ball downfield, which is kind of why, I give the Buccaneers the advantage in that case just because Tom Brady likes to do that little dunk and dive type of four or five yard passes versus Aaron Rodgers. And that offense isn't designed for those short kind of plays. But the play that I want to look at on Sunday was the Cleveland fumble out of the end zone, which basically a lot of people say that changed the game, which did it change the game? Yes, it potentially did because a penalty should have been called. Yes, it was a helmet-to-helmet hit, but the fumble still went out of the end zone given the ball to Kansas City. So even if they do call a 15-yard penalty as they should have, Cleveland gets the ball at the 27-yard line as opposed to the 42 where the play started. So there's no guarantee that Cleveland gets a touchdown in that possession anyways. But even watching that play over, I like the no call in that situation because if you watch that play in slow motion – Sorensen was already diving to make the play before that Cleveland Browns receiver left his feet. And if that Cleveland Brown receiver does not leave his feet, he gets hit in the hip and the abdomen area as opposed to being hit up by the shoulder pads. Yeah, I mean, I understand where you're coming from. But, you know, he, he certainly seemed to be kind of going in with his his helmet. You know, in college, they're a little – they're not a little, really sort of a lot stricter when it comes to that sort of thing. Um, NFL, a lot, sometimes they'll let it slide, you know, especially on a, a close call like that where it's maybe incidental. Um, you know, for me, it was my reaction to it was more of my disdain for what I consider to be the worst rule in sports is that if you fumble out of the end zone, it's a touchback for the, you know, for the defense. Um, I just think that rule is so stupid, and I hope that that'll, you know, it seems like that's always something that sparks, that finally gets the competition committee to make a rule changes when you have a controversial play in the playoffs. How would you change? How would you change that rule then? Because I've heard a lot of people say that too, where they hate the rule. But I mean, if a kickoff or a punt goes out of the end zone to touchback and things like that, I guess how would you? change the rule for the better, I guess, in that situation. Well, when you fumble out of bounds in the field of play, it just goes back to where the ball was fumbled from. So I don't know why they can't just do that when it goes out of the end zone. Uh, this weird – that that's actually the weirdest element of football to me is how touchbacks are treated. I just think all the different rules – with like, you know, the differences between college and pros, like can the player be in the end zone when he touches it? Does the ball have to like bounce in the end zone? Like all the different weird rules about touchbacks are like the strangest <laughs> element of, of football to me. And I just think that's a stupid rule that makes no sense because it really punishes 
you know, a player for just like attempting to score is just really fluky to me. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, that's just where I've always thought of it as if somebody fumbles it, like if, if, you know, if, um, the receiver had fumbled it, where he fumbled it from, you know, inside the two or whatever, and say it would have gone out of bounds at the one, they would have just put it back at the two and Cleveland would have had the ball. I don't understand why all because it happens to roll, you know, into the end zone and roll out of bounds that they have to treat it differently. Like, you know, it didn't go out of bounds. And I don't know. It's just really odd to me. But anyway, that's a rule that really gets, um, you know, lambasted a lot and has in recent years. And I think maybe that might finally, you know, provoke the uh, competition committee to change that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was just a controversial play, you know, from that to the, to the hit. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're always going to have at least one controversial ruling in the playoffs, but you know, the the reaction to – I mean, you know, Cleveland was able to put together a solid performance after that. It's not like that really killed their momentum. But um, so it's, so that – therefore, that controversial decision didn't really clog the headlines uh, on Monday. But um, still, you know, you have to wonder what the Browns would have been able to do if they had scored a touchdown right there and, and been able to, you know, at least temporarily gain – all the momentum. So, um, yeah, just a controversial play and, you know, so we'll, we'll just have to see what comes out of it. I mean, it, it, as weird as it is for me to say this, I think the fumble out of the end zone and giving the ball back to Kansas city actually helped the Browns in the way, because when Kansas city got the ball back, they really didn't try to score at that point. They just kind of went down took a knee and just took the lead into halftime versus, if Cleveland does end up getting a touchdown on that play, you're giving Patrick Mahomes a minute and 40 seconds to drive down the field and try to score once more before halftime. So, I mean, you look at it that way, yes, it kind of changed the game from the Cleveland side of things, but at the same time, it did help them a little bit because even if they get a touchdown on there, they're still losing by four. Then you give the ball back to Patrick Mahomes, and at worst, he goes down and gives them to a field goal. It ends up being basically – a basically a split at that point. Each team scored with like less than two minutes to go. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, Cleveland certainly had his chances in the second half. Um, and the chiefs defense just came up big when it needed to. And, you know, they were able to hold them off. And we'll switch over to the baseball side of things now, which, Ever since Rob Manfred said that baseball is going to start on time, now all of a sudden free agency is happening and at a pace yeah. that we haven't seen in probably three or four years, which is actually a pleasant sight considering how slow free agency has been the past few years. And you look at teams like the Toronto Blue Jays, who last night just decided to make headlines by getting George Springer, and now this morning they get Michael Brantley and – Angels are getting guys like Jose Quintana and the Nationals are getting Schwarber and now John Lester. The Blue Jays got Tyler Chatwood the other day. I mean, a lot of those signings were pretty much out of the price range for the Cubs, maybe with the exception of Tyler Chatwood and John Lester. But I guess the thing that now has really irritated me the most when it comes to how free agency has gone this year and what it comes to the decisions that the Cubs have made is, 
the Cubs felt that Schwarber, Elmora, Lester, and all these players weren't good enough to get $8 million offers, $4 million offers, et cetera, et cetera. But yet the rest of the league is giving these players offers that the Cubs could afford. Does that kind of just kind of rub you the wrong way? And basically the rest of the league is obviously seeing something in these players that the Cubs are not seeing. And with Quintana going to Anaheim and Schwarber and John Lester going to Washington, they're joining coaches who they played with in the past, which is another which is another reason why it's just annoying me more than anything where, yes, I understand the Cubs wanted to save money, but these contracts are not out of their price range. It just makes me feel like they had no plan to bring any one of these guys back. And if you were to bring anyone back, Lester should have been the one you brought back. He made it perfectly clear that he wanted to retire as a Chicago Cub, and he made it perfectly clear that he would take less money to go back to Chicago. And the fact that they never even called him to make a counter offer of, or anything, it kind of just rubs me the wrong way with how the franchise is going to do things right now. Yeah, pretty much everything they've done this offseason has rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and I agree with you. It does sort of seem like they it wasn't really in their plans at all to try to bring these guys back which might have been why Lester waited so long to sign. Because, you know, I mean, with him just potentially looking to play one more year, I mean, you know, it, it was – you figure he would have been a guy – it seems like really veteran pitchers like that will kind of sign early on. But he sort of hung around, maybe waiting on the Cubs to give him a good offer. Uh, that offer seemingly never came. And, uh, yeah, now he's joining Schwarber with the Nationals. So – and, yeah, like you said, Chatwood to the Blue Jays, Quintana to the Angels, and all that happened really. And a lot of the signings happened in, in short order. I think Amar is on the verge of going to the Mets too. Ah, yeah. So, yeah, and that's – well, and he's a guy I can understand the Cubs moving yeah. on from. But still, I mean, you know, they really haven't – it seems like they've decided to move on from uh, virtually everybody who they, they were able to move on from. And they still might be looking to make, you know, a trade. Um, we'll have to see if anything comes to fruition before spring training, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's dis it's disappointing. It's disheartening. I would have loved to have seen Lester, you know, come back and, um, maybe have a swan song, one final full season with the Cubs, you know, I mean, you can make the case that the Cubs bring him on board is one of the most important transactions in the history of that franchise. Cause it really jump started. Uh, what turned in what eventually turned into the uh, 2016 World Series run. So, um, yeah, it's very disappointing. Um, you know, I thought I was out of disappointments for the Cubs this offseason, but I was just even more disappointed to see that. I thought at the very least they would, you know, after getting rid of Darvish, they would let they would bring back Lester to kind of shore up that rotation or at least try to bring him back which it doesn't really seem like they did um so yeah it's it's disheartening but you know this is just going to be kind of a transition year i guess for the cubs and again we'll have to see with Contreras and bryant if they choose to if if um you know hoyer decides to move on from one of them maybe in a, a pre-spring training spring training trade or maybe waits until the deadline to make a decision on trying to deal one or both of those guys. Uh, 
but yeah, I mean, it just becomes increasingly obvious with each passing week. It seems like why Epstein decided to change his mind and walk away from this team because it just seems like the direction they're going in is something he really didn't want to stick around from. And now with, of course, his MLB front office gig, um, he's moved on to, moved on to greener pastures. So, yeah, it's just disappointing. And just the feeling surrounding this team heading into spring training is going to be, you know, not very hopeful. <laughs> Probably the most disappointing feeling surrounding the Cubs that we've had in quite some time heading into a season. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I just, it, it just stinks to see uh, Lester go somewhere else as well as some of the other guys. I, and the, just the salaries that these guys are signing for, I mean, Kyle Schwarber mm-hmm. getting $10 million, okay, that might have been more than what the Cubs were willing to pay because they didn't even want to give him $8 million, but $3 million for Chatwood. Lester got, I think, four, four and a half million. And now I think Quintana's getting six or seven from the Angels. It's not like these salaries were out of the question for the Cubs, considering the, the amount of money they freed up. It's just that they have no desire to spend anything right now. And they have to spend something somewhere. They have to spend money on a backup catcher. They have to spend money on bullpen help. And they have to spend money on at least one starting pitcher. Well, if you're not going to go get Lester, who would have probably come to Chicago at $4 million, who do you expect to get if you're not even willing to put $4 million into a guy like Lester? I don't know. Beats me. Um, I, you know, It may just be a thing where Hoyer's going to stretch it out as far as he can. Um, and then you know, maybe early February when they're gearing up to, for pitchers and catchers to report you know, late January, early February coming up here in the near future. He he signs a couple veterans who haven't who are still on the market. You know, yeah, they'll have to bring in a, a backup catcher for sure. And yeah, I'm assuming they'll look at another starter, preferably a lefty. And uh yeah, the big thing is the bullpen. I mean, obviously it's been the, you know, never ending question mark for the Cubs ever since they won the World Series, but you know, I mean, it's it's really going to be kind of scary heading into this season because, you know, again, it's always the big question mark, but it's it's been something that Epstein has at least prioritized with looking to round it out. But, you know, I'm, it's looking like they'll have a lot of the same guys back in that bullpen, I guess, a lot of those sort of unheralded, unproven relievers back in action, but you know, yeah, they're they're gonna need some bullpen help, and um, yeah, I mean, just you know, they they've signed several, you know, multiple pitchers who could end up ultimately rounding out that bullpen, but it's just been guys who, with you know, pretty limited big league experience or very unimpressive big league experience, guys signed to sort of minor league prove it deals um, with spring training invites, and you know, we'll just we'll just have to wait and see. I've said that a lot in recent weeks about the Cubs approach, but with what, what's going on there behind the scenes, I just don't know. And, you know, I really don't know what else to say because it's, it really does seem like it's kind of a matter of this being a transition year where they're just trying to unload salary and then Hoyer can, you know, officially go to work is like the true, czar of this team looking to you know 
the front office maven of this team looking to rebuild, looking to build his own team next offseason. Yeah, and I guess the last thing I'm going to make, the last point I'm going to make here before we kind of transition into Theo a little bit is the Cubs knew this situation was coming for, I want to say, roughly three or four years. They knew when these players were hitting arbitration. They knew when a lot of these players were, like, ending their arbitration years before they would hit the extension. I guess the biggest problem that I have with the current situation they're in is this could have all been avoided by better planning. And I'm not going to say like whole free agency side of things because yes, the Cubs did spend a ton in free agency early on, but you very easily could have given extensions to Baez, Contreras, Rizzo, Brian Schwarber, any of these players, you could have been giving these guys extensions for the past three or four years. And you could have backloaded the contract where they're making less money up front, and then when guys like Lester and Hayward come off the books, that's when they start getting more of their annual money, and it would have ended up saving the Cubs basically a lot of money on the front side of things, and then when they have more money freed up later on, that's when they would start making the bulk of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, there will always be the questions surrounding what Epstein and Hoyer could have done to mitigate some of this. In recent years, you know, there are always going to be repercussions for seemingly clinging to something for too long in sports. You know, when you keep that core group together, maybe a little too long, there's always this kind of abrupt, you know, ending where where everything just kind of hits a wall and you have to sort of um, tear it down in order to build it back up. So it's it's always a a bad feeling and sad and, you know but it's sort of a necessary thing in professional sports. But, yeah, I mean, you reap what you sow, I guess. But, you know, it, it is just sort of disheartening to see how unwilling, you know, the Cubs front office has been this offseason to at least spend some money and, like, you know, have the chance to compete for a World Series. Because I think I've I mentioned this before on a past episode, one thing about baseball, and I guess it's just because, you know, there's no salary cap and it's just sort of cutthroat, like how you have to compete with other teams since you can spend bukus of dollars on players, on player personnel. It, it seems like a lot of times teams are just a little too quick to just say, well, you know, we got to – it seems like this World Series window is kind of closed. Let's just sort of blow it all up and, and go back to the drawing board and – you know, not spend and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know, you can kind of gradually work into that because with this, you know, with the core talent they still have there, I mean, with a good rotation and a better bullpen from the past few seasons, you know, that's a team that you couldn't rule that team out from competing for the World Series. I mean, certainly you can now, I think it's safe to say, with the people they've let walk away or dealt away, but yeah, if they were able to, you know, keep Darvish and Hendricks and a lot of those core guys and round out that bullpen, you couldn't necessarily rule that team out from, you know, you know its first 162-game season under Ross with making a World Series run. But it seems like they're just content with sort of going back to the drawing board. Yeah, and speaking of Theo, I guess we got our answer whether or not Theo was going to actually take the year off from baseball or not. But 
he decided to take the job that I think both of us expected him to take at some point and join the MLB commissioner's office to uh, oversee on-field issues and things like that, which basically I think you and I are on the same boat on this one. When Rob Manfred's contract comes up, I think the commissioner job is going to be Theo Epstein's to have. Personally, I think that could be the greatest decision baseball would make. And I think putting him just in the front office position that he's in right now, baseball just got a whole lot better instantly. Yes, absolutely. And I was, I was pretty pleased to see that decision. I mean, I would much rather see him go that route instead of, you know, take up another front office job or maybe try and set up and create an ownership group to potentially buy a team. Um, because I think this way he can really serve baseball. You know, I mean, he's one of the brightest minds in the history of baseball, one of the most important front office figures in the history of Major League Baseball. And I think the most logical outcome for him in his career is for him to reach the pinnacle as being the commissioner of MLB. And, you know, we both voiced our um, – concerns our grievances with Manfred and some of the decisions he's made in recent years and or not recent years really throughout his tenure um you know even though he's he's done a decent job I mean I don't want to be too hard on him he's definitely made some tough decisions that have panned out but I just think that you know Epstein could potentially do an even better job and and be a a groundbreaking commissioner you know based on how he described his new position and, and some comments he's made in the past about, you know, about the way the game is being played and, and tying it in with this new job. Um, you know, it's pretty clear that he would like to fix some of the kind of, you know, logistical issues with games and then how stats are excessively factored in and, it's kind of funny. It's like he was sort of the um, poster boy, you know, he and Billy Bean were like the poster boys for the, um, you know, nerdy front office guys who rely so heavily on numbers, um, you know, and he was like that poster boy for so long. But it's like now he's trying to sort of mitigate some of that and and help out baseball, help maybe potentially change the way the game is played in order to draw viewership back and maybe potentially get, you know, the younger crowd, the Gen Z, I guess, get them more involved and more interested in watching baseball. You know, Manfred's tried his best, and that's some of, I guess, my main issues with him have been with some of his weird decisions regarding how to maybe change the game in order to uh, stimulate fan interest. And a lot of those decisions have, not really made much of an impact, you know, and I mean, baseball is still in obviously a great place. I'm not saying it's in like a grave in grave danger of losing out on all popularity, but you know, the more time passes on and the more you're looking to bring in a younger fan base, um, it is worth addressing some of these issues that have made the game quote unquote boring in recent times and, you know, helping to correct the, you know, the reliance too too heavily on home runs and too many strikeouts and just taking a lot of the fun out elements kind of out of the game. And that seems like what he's going to really be prioritizing here, at least, you know, the, the next 
few years and then maybe he'll yeah and then hopefully he'll be set up to um transition in the commission into the commissioner's role at some point yeah i agree i just i just love how he kind of took time away for a couple months just kind of figure things out but in the end he realized that this was the true opportunity that he's been waiting for and the one that he knew he couldn't pass up now and now he kind of gets to do his own thing without having to worry about overseeing a franchise. He gets to oversee the entire baseball side of things, but he's not like directly overseeing it. He gets to watch basically the product on the field, determine what he thinks needs to be changed, what he thinks needs to be fixed and things like that. And kind of just go about his business like that and just input his thoughts on the game itself. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And this could, yeah, I mean, this could be a huge decision for, a huge hire for Major League Baseball and could really, you know, make a tremendously positive impact on, on this league for years to come. And now we'll head over to the NBA side of things to talk a little bit about the Bulls and take away the 22-point lead they had against Oklahoma City last week and before letting it slip away in the fourth quarter. And you have the Bulls who are sitting at 6-8 and eight right now. They're off to their best start in four years, which six and eight isn't anything to get too excited about. But at the same time, they're playing a lot better than I think a lot of people expected them to. It's still a very young team that is still learning how to win games. It's still a team that has yet to play a single game at full strength as they've had to deal with COVID stuff since the season started. And the more you watch this team, the happier you got, the happier you have to be with the way they are playing and, Obviously, the season's still not even a month old, but right now the Bulls are currently the 10th seed in the Eastern Conference, and we knew that the top 10 teams would make the playoffs. So unless things drastically change, which obviously there's still plenty of time left, I expect the Bulls to be competing for that final playoff spot all season because Billy Donovan has just brought a different style of play to this team. They're ranked fourth in the NBA in points per game at just under 118 points a game. Defensively, they rank towards the bottom of the league at 120 points allowed, but that shows you that they're pretty much in every single one of their games because offensively, this is the best the team has looked since the Derrick Rose MVP years when the Bulls had the best record in the East. Yeah, I mean, it's been shockingly great how quickly this offense has, has started to gel under Donovan. Um, yeah, and they've kept the ball rolling. I mean, since we were last on air, um, yeah, they've had some cl- some tough losses, some close losses, especially on the road. Um, but, you know, they're a young team, a, a young up-and-coming team, so that's to be expected. But it's still impressive. They're able to hang with some of the teams they've been able to hang with. But, yeah, two-point loss in overtime at the Thunder. But then, you know, Markinen, uh played a great game. Of course, as you mentioned, you know, he's, he's come back and, and – quickly gelled with the team again and um he played a great game and they were able to beat the Mavs at the Mavs and then pulled out a home win over the Rockets so um and yeah and Oladipo played in that game after of course after the big time trade the Harden trade but but the uh, Bulls were able to come away with the wins so yeah I mean that offense just keeps on rolling um like you said, I mean, one of the top offenses in the league, really, really so far early on in the season. And 
um, yeah, that final spot in the playoffs or some of those, you know, final few spots in the postseason are definitely uh, up for grabs. You know, the Bulls are, are right there in the hunt. But, you know, if this offense keeps on rolling and, and they keep improving, you know, maybe they can aim for bigger and better than that because, um, yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised with how quickly they've, you know, taken to Donovan's coaching and, you know, under this new coaching staff, how quickly this team is is gelled and been able to put together some really quality performances. And oddly enough, I know the Bulls did not spend a ton of money free agent side of things. They added a couple players for kind of relatively cheap, relatively cheap contracts. But the one free agent signing that they picked up and no one's talking about has actually turned out to be a very good pickup is Garrett Temple. And he's averaging nine, just under 10 points a game right now off the bench, but he started in place of marking in the other night and dropped 21. And he's been a guy that has the, over the past five or six games, he's been averaging 10 to 15 points off the bench and he's been shooting the ball probably better than any point in his 13 year career. Yeah, you know, it's funny you brought him up because Temple's one of those guys who kind of makes me laugh because he's one of these dudes who's, like, been around forever and, you know, you like, never really, like, accomplished a whole lot. But, you know, and he played on a bunch of different teams. But it's like he's always there and always gets a contract. Like, Anthony Tolliver is another player that I sort of put in that category of guys who are just sort of always around and always a role player for some team looking to maybe sneak into the playoffs, it seems like. But, yeah, I mean, he's part of the reason he stays in the league for this long is he stayed in the league for this long is because, you know, he's a great leader, I think, a great locker room guy, um, a, just a great well-rounded player with a lot of different skills. Um, you know, he was on that Nets team last year. They brought him in when they were obviously – um, setting up the new beginning of the Nets franchise and, you know, having to go without Durant um, and, and also Kyrie for most of the year. And, and Temple proved to be fruitful for that team. And, yeah, he's just a great voice to have in the locker room and a guy who can give you some key minutes. But, yeah, he's turned out to be uh, an X factor in more ways than that uh, in recent games. So, yeah, I mean, I guess – the Bulls front office knew what they were doing by bringing him in. And I'm going to throw this question out there to you. And I know you might not remember as well as I do, but this Bulls team kind of reminds me a lot of that 2008, 2009 squad that was coached by Vinny DeNegro before Tom Thibodeau came in where you had a Bulls team that was struggling to win games for three or four years. Vinny Del Negro comes in and the team goes 41 and 41. They get the eighth seed in the postseason, ended up having what yeah. I still call the yes. greatest postseason series in NBA history against the Boston yeah. Celtics. This year kind of reminds me a lot of that team where the Bulls have been stuck in transition the past three years, struggling to win games. They basically kept the same roster intact during this point, but all of a sudden they bring in a new head coach and things are clicking. If you look at the whole Benny Del, ne Del Negro situation, they had the same roster put in place. Wendell Carter plays very similar to how Joe Kim Noah played back then. 
Ben Gordon is a scorer, much like Zach Levine is. And a lot of the way that team was constructed is very similar to how this team's this year's team is constructed. That's a great point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But, yeah, they're, they are similar to that team. I, I really like that particular core group of Bulls players. You know, it was an interesting assortment of guys. And I like the way they played. And, yeah, to add to your story, so – um, yeah, I was in middle school when that happened, but I certainly remember it because uh, being from South Carolina, Kevin Garnett was always my favorite player growing up because he's from upstate South Carolina where I'm from. And so I was a big Celtics fan when he was there. And he actually didn't play in that series because he was hurt, but um, I was still obviously a huge Celtics fan regardless. Uh, but yeah, that series like took years off my life because I mean, so many overtimes, just game after game. And I agree with you. That's the greatest playoff series ever. I mean, so many thrilling um, late game finishes. And yeah, that was a team that just made things interesting late and, you know, hung on and, and just was a thrilling, exciting, hard nosed team. And, yeah, I do see the similarities between that team and this year's team for sure. Because, again, you go back to that team, too. You had Derrick Rose, who I think was either in, was either a rookie that year or in his second year. Kobe White's still um, young. and he's, in, he's I wouldn't say he's as gifted scoring-wise as Derrick Rose because Derrick Rose was just a freak of nature back then. But Kobe White still has that offensive side of things to him. And then, like I said, Ben Gordon was a very similar player to Zach Levine. Uh, Luol Deng, I guess you could say, is very similar to how Patrick Williams and Otto Porter Jr. operate. I mean, the similarities are there. I just think this team that they have this year, obviously, is more advanced than that team just because they've been playing together longer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, yeah, that was Rose's rookie year. So that was, uh, that was his debut playoff series. So. Yeah, great way to kick off your playoff career. But, um, yeah, I mean, I certainly see the similarities there, mentioning him and, and Co- Rose and Kobe White and some other guys. But, yeah, I mean, this is a team that's similar to that team. They could end up being a low seed in the playoffs but could really make some noise and potentially, you know, come close to pulling off an upset or maybe pull off an upset in the first round. And while, you know, the Bulls obviously haven't done much because they didn't have the cap space to do it, and we kind of anticipated they weren't going to maybe do too much this year because I think Arturis Karnasovas and Donovan more so wanted to see what they had on this roster before making any significant changes. You have the Brooklyn Nets who pulled off a trade that I thought was going to happen even before the season started, but I think the trade actually even ended up getting better, especially if you consider the Houston Rockets and what they're getting. They're getting Victor Oladipo instead of James Harden. But plus, I think looking back at it, they're getting like six or seven first and second round draft picks. So now Houston's stocked up for the future and they can kind of hold on to those picks to make future trades down the line. But now you have Kevin Durant, James Harden, and I guess Kyrie Irving is, is returning to the team. Nobody really knows at this point. And nobody knows how these three are going to coexist because all three demand the ball and all three love to score. But if these three players can coexist together, Brooklyn just became the team to beat in the Eastern Conference because there's no other team in the Eastern Conference that's going to have three players that on any given night can score 100 points between the three of them. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this big three of all the big threes we've had in the NBA um, over the course of the past, you know, 12 years, 12, 13 years, um, maybe longer than that, 15 years. But anyway, of all the big threes we've had, uh, how this one will be will stack up and be remembered, you know, because offensively, I mean, there may not be a there probably isn't a better big three that there's ever been. I mean, you know, you have two of the greatest scores of all time, obviously, in Durant and Harden, and then you have Kyrie, a guy who's really obviously an enigma at this point, but you know, when he's playing and and has his head in the game and is healthy, um, with the ball in his hands, I mean, he's like about as dangerous a point guard as you'll as you'll ever find. So yeah, offensively, uh certainly if those three are clicking, you know, if Kyrie's able to get back in the flow of things and and stay, you know, just stay focused on basketball. Um, you know, of course he's done a lot of commendable great stuff off the court, uh, especially, you know, since this summer. But yeah, it'd just be nice to see him get back in tune with with the team and just you know play on a regular basis. Uh, but yeah, that I agree with you. That's certainly the team to beat because I mean, how can you stop them? Like how? I mean, Durant already looks like you know after missing a full season, he already looks like he's back in really MVP form. Um, so I just don't know, you know, who in the East is going to be able to step up and stop that team. You know, I mean, there are talks about well, will their egos get in the way? Will they all want the ball? I don't know. I mean, I'm not so worried about that this season. You know, I think that at the very least they'll be able to come together and, you know, really understand that, hey, we can dominate and, you know, storm our way to the NBA finals and and win a championship, you know, and get Harden his first his first ring. Um, so I'm not so worried about that this year. Um, you know, if anything, I'm just kind of worried about for their sake is just their lack of, you know, they're going to have some depth issues with the trade they had to make in order to get Harden and the guys they had to give up. And, you know, I mean, they got DeAndre Jordan down low, but other than that, size is sort of an issue. Um, but we'll just be able to see. I mean, there were, you know, anytime you have three high-profile, highly-paid guys like that on a team, like we saw with the big three in Miami, uh, you know, it's just going to be – you know, you're going to have to find contributions just wherever you can get them outside of those three guys. But, um, yeah, if they're able to really flow and, and, you know, if Durant's able to keep playing like he's been playing, which I'm sure he will, and, you know, he'll lead the way for this team. Yeah, I'm, I agree with you that the team to beat, not just in the East, but maybe in the whole NBA. Yeah, I agree. And then we'll switch over to uh, Chicago Blackhawks now. And four games into the season, and the Blackhawks have been, to say, painful to watch would be an understatement. They've allowed five goals in all four (laughs) games, which is by far the most in the NHL. Uh, They scored a total of five goals their first three games and then came away with four goals last night in their first game where they got a point, but they ended up losing in overtime. And, we knew coming into the season that this team was going to be young and this team was going to struggle. I did not expect them to struggle to the point they've struggled so far this season, especially goaltending-wise, because despite it not having a ton of experience in, in the goal part goal side of things, giving up five goals a game is 
pretty hard to do on a professional level. And Chicago's making it look pretty easy because that's something that's happening on a given night. And when we looked at the schedule when it first came out, we saw this two-game set with Detroit coming up as kind of maybe like the stepping stone the Blackhawks could use to kind of put themselves in a good position. Well, all of a sudden, the Detroit Red Wings now are 2-2, two and two, and the Red Wings are looking like a much better team versus the Blackhawks are starting to look like the Red Wings of last year. Yeah, I mean, to put it this way, I have to wonder if somebody in the front office has been calling up Corey Crawford trying to convince him to delay his retirement until this this next offseason <laughs> because, yeah, it's been really rough. Like you said, five games – or excuse me, four games and giving up five goals in every one of them. That's pretty pathetic and pretty hard to do. But, you know, we knew – we kind of knew that there would be maybe some question marks, some issues there, you know, with moving on from Crawford after all this time. Um, but, yeah, it's – you know, it's been a rough start to the season. And like you said, now they have to take on a Red Wings team in two game, for two games that's – been better than maybe expected to start the year. Um, and, yeah, I mean, they're going to have to figure out the, the goalkeeping situation in a hurry or this is going to be a long, uh, strenuous season for Chicago. Yeah, it makes, it makes me wonder, too. Like, I understand the Blackhawks wanted to get younger, and I understand that they were kind of in a similar situation to where the Cubs were, where – a lot of their higher contracts on the team were basically of the players that they wanted to get younger with. But it makes me wonder if this front office is now regretting getting rid of some of the players they got rid of because the team that they have out there right now is it's just not going to get it done. It's, it's not a team that is going to compete for the playoffs. It's not a team that has enough firepower that can go up there on a daily basis. And we all know in order to win hockey games – it all starts between the pipes, and right now the Blackhawks have three unproven goaltenders that haven't done much to give fans confidence going forward. Yeah, for sure, and I agree with you. It's kind of like the Cubs. I mean, you know, they they've the Blackhawks have seen the sort of Stan Bowman seems to have sort of resigned himself to the fact that it's time to sort of start a start a mini rebuild. Um, you know, they were actually somewhat impressive in the bubble. Pretty impressive, I should say. Better than somewhat. Um, and Crawford seemed to sort of rejuvenate his career. But obviously they'll let him walk, and then he ends up retiring. And of course, they let some other guys walk as well. Jonathan Taze was not happy about that. Uh, was just rather more confused about that. He said as much to the media. And, you know, now, yeah, they're kind of reaping what they sowed, what they've sown, um, and off to – a really rough start. Not only are you 0-4, but you're averaging giving up five goals a game, so couldn't get much worse than that. Yeah, I agree. Like I said, through four games, I expected the Blackhawks to have at the very least one win. I honestly thought they would win two games, especially when you look at what a lot of teams are doing. A lot of teams are alternating goalies from – one game to the next, so you might get the team's best goalie in the first game of this of the two games set, but then you could get the backup goalie in that second game, and I think that's the more frustrating part was it's not like the Blackhawks are going up against all these 
high quality goalies night in and night out. They're getting some backups here and there, but even offensively, when they get a chance to score on these teams, they're just not even getting that many decent chances off. The yeah, goals. right. And uh, I need to clarify: Blackhawks technically o three and one. My bad, because the Columbus or the uh, excuse me, the second Florida loss was an overtime. But anyway, yeah, um, yeah only one point through four games, uh, not good. Um, yeah, I mean they're just gonna have to figure some things out, or it's gonna be a rough, you know, next four months or so. Exactly. Uh, last topic of the day will be uh, college basketball and. College basketball continues to be an arm wrestle, to say things. I mean, of all the sports going on right now, I think college basketball continues to be the one that's more affected by COVID than anything. I mean, there's a lot of cancellations going on in hockey right now. There's There was a lot of cancellations going on in the NBA, but it seems like the NBA has kind of got that back under control now. But since we were last on air, uh, Notre Dame picked up a 10-point win against Boston College to put an end to their four-game losing streak. So that was definitely a step in the right direction. Now they're off until the 24th, so they kind of have some extended time off before getting back into the front of the ACC schedule. And just looking at the ACC as a whole, this <laughs> conference is – I mean, it, it's a down year, that's for sure, but you're looking at teams like Pittsburgh and Georgia Tech, who typically are the bottom two teams in the league are sitting in the top five. Duke's a three and two team in the middle. North Carolina's three and three. I mean, teams that typically contend for the conference title are sitting towards the bottom of the league. And it just seems like this year the, the league is flipped completely upside down outside of Virginia leading the way. Right, yeah. Virginia and their great defense leading the way. But yeah, like you said, this been a rough year, a forgettable year so far for ACC basketball. And this is ACC Commissioner John Swafford's last year. He's retiring uh, over the summer. Um, so yeah, he's not necessarily going out with a bang as far as basketball is concerned. Maybe they'll have a good ACC baseball season for him, but, um, anyway, yeah, it's, it's been rough for the ACC for sure. And, you know, like you said, I mean, a lot of the blue bloods are struggling, um, Duke, North Carolina, et cetera. And, um, yeah, I mean, as for Notre Dame, you know, they Kind of, you know, they hung tough at Virginia, lost by 12. Uh, of course, Virginia seems to be a Final Four contender, so that's not a bad loss, obviously. And then they won a game they should have, they should win um, at home against Boston College, won by 10 in that one. Um, you know, it's going to be tough for them to be able to find a way to get into the tournament. Um, if there is an NIT this year, then I guess they'll, they're right now set up to. Um, potentially be in the NIT. But, yeah, I mean, they'll just have to, you know, win games that they should win. It's as simple as that. There are a lot of poor teams, a lot of bad teams or shaky teams, to say the least, in the ACC. And maybe Notre Notre Dame can kind of establish itself as being one of the top-tier teams down the stretch. Because, like you said, I mean, it's not – it's been so disappointing. I mean, really, outside of Virginia and, and maybe Clemson and a couple other teams, there's not a, there aren't a lot of promising teams in the ACC right now. And then you look at uh, the Big East where DePaul is. You have DePaul who 
continues to struggle in conference. They have yet to win a conference game this year. They're sitting at 0-5, but then they're 2-0 outside of conference. And like we said, DePaul's the team that has just suffered, I think, the toughest season of anybody this year where you knew once they had pretty much their entire first month of the season canceled that it was going to be hard for them to get into rhythm. And then when they started getting in rhythm, they had some more games canceled. They never really kind of got in the flow of things. They now hopefully will have a stretch of a lot of games coming up. I know you they have Creighton on that list and Marquette and Xavier. So, I mean, three teams that are typically powerhouses in the Big East, but at least they're going to start getting a stretch of games in here where maybe they can finally get that confidence and kind of get that consistency that they've lacked by not having all those games early Yeah, on. I mean, thankfully they had a non-conference game worked into their schedule, you know, against a mid-major in Valpo, and they were able to – you know, get their feet under them and get a big win there. But then a really poor offensive performance at home against Butler, lost by 14 to Butler um, last night. Of course, we're recording this on a Wednesday. On Tuesday night, lost to Butler by 14. And um, now they got ahead to Marquette. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm happy they were able to get to play Valpo and get that worked into their schedule so the, the team could get a win. Um, might be one of their few wins in the 2021 um, portion of the season um, or just the season overall. They were only able to win one game before New Year's. Uh, but, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's just tough sledding for them and um, just, you know, maybe a situation where they're just kind of hanging on for dear life as they head toward the finish line. And then we'll move to the Big Ten now, and the Big Ten continues to show that they're the toughest conference in the country. There's no unbeaten teams left in that conference. You have Michigan leading the way at 7-1, and one, followed by Iowa at 6-1. and one. Then you have a bunch of teams, including Illinois, that have three losses. Even the bottom of the league, Maryland is 2-6 and six in conference play. Michigan State is 2-4 and four in Big Ten play, but yet they're 8-4 and four overall. This is the one conference where, like I've said to you the last couple of weeks, that when it comes down to it for, like, selection Sunday for the NCAA tournament, this is the conference where you have to throw records out of the window right now because right now Illinois is sitting at 10-5. and five. They're coming off of back-to-back losses against Maryland and Ohio State before beating Penn State. But even at 10-5, and five, the committee has them sitting at 22nd in the country where in normal circumstances, a 10 and five team would not be ranked in the top 25. If this was right. a normal college basketball year. And you have Northwestern too. Northwestern is three and five in big 10 play, but yet they're six and six overall. And it's, they're not a bad six and six team. It's just, they're in a conference where every single time out on the court, it seems like they're going against a top 25 team, which is why Northwestern is in the verge of a five game losing streak right now with, Number 10, Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, I can already imagine that this is going to be a a rather unorthodox um, selection Sunday or just, you know, an unorthodox route for the selection committee to take. In getting to selection Sunday, they're going to have to factor in a whole bunch of stuff um, that they don't necessarily have to consider under usual circumstances. But, yeah, the fact that the Big Ten is just so much – better than every other conference, like far and away the best conference. It's going to be something they're going to have to figure in, uh, figure 
you know, into the factor into the equation and determining seeding. Um, cause yeah, like you said, I mean, Illinois, you know, a tough loss, close loss at home to Ohio state, but then a double digit win at home over Penn state. And as for Northwestern, how we're able to hang tough with Ohio state at Ohio state lost by 10, um, but then got destroyed, um, at home by a really, really good Iowa team, which, you know, doesn't, isn't necessarily a huge blow to Northwestern's resume, uh, but yeah, it's just you know it's it's just survival the fittest in the Big Ten right now, and um, you know I'm I'm sure a, a lot of the top tier teams in other conferences certainly are envious of the top tier teams in the Big Ten because of how difficult their schedule is on a weekly basis playing in the Big Ten. So you know Illinois and, and Northwestern, um, I mean I still think Illinois is a really great team. Uh, you know, been a bit underwhelming based on what we saw early in the season, like how they were able to play at Duke. Um, but, you know, I mean, still great offense, um, very talented team, and we'll just see if they're able to pick up some big wins the rest of the way. And as for Northwestern, just, you know, kind of find wins where you can get them and, and stay on the bubble. Yeah, and um, it just it just amazes me too. Which I don't know if you really follow this at all, but you look at the one conference during the college football season that had the biggest COVID issues, and what conference was it? The Big Ten, and now that's the conference that has had the least amount of issues for college basketball. Where you have the ACC, one of the conferences that had seemingly got through the football season for the most part, almost as perfectly as you could get through it. Now they're the ones having the biggest yeah. problem right now during the college basketball season. And mm-hmm. it's just one of those weird coincidences, like how the Big Ten went from being the conference that was struggling to even get a season in to now the conference that seems like they're going to be the yeah. only conference that plays yeah. the entire Big yeah. Ten Yeah, I mean, kudos to the Big Ten for the job they've been able to do so far and putting together a legitimate season. Because, yeah, the ACC has been struggling with having to cancel games. Been rough. And then before we head off today, um, I'll just take your predictions for uh, the playoffs this Sunday. I know we kind of talked about it kind of at the beginning of the show, but who do you think is going to win this week? And then, like, what scores do you have to gain? Um, So I think Green Bay will win kind of comfortably. I'll say they win by, you know, a couple touchdowns, I think. Um, I just think the way Rodgers has been playing, the way that offense has been clicking. Um, I know the Tampa Bay defense is one of the best in the league, but – I don't really see them having too much success slowing down that offense, playing in what will likely be very wintry conditions there in, in Green Bay. So I like them to win somewhat comfortably. And as far as Chiefs builds, assuming Mahomes plays and is you know close to 100%, if not 100%, um, I'll take the Chiefs to win in a shootout. I think it will be high scoring, and I'll say Chiefs win by no more than – a touchdown. Um, I think it'll be a fun, exciting game. Um, you know, it may be a game that the Chiefs kind of control the tempo or, or the pace of the game throughout. I always stay kind of one step ahead of Buffalo, but um, Buffalo, I think, should be able to hang tough with them. And, you know, that'll just be a fun, high powered, high octane offensive slugfest. 
So for the Green Bay game, I think it's more depending on the weather. If the weather ends up being what it's supposed to be, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Green Bay twenty to seventeen. If the weather ends up where it's supposed to be, but if the weather ends up being a lot nicer than what it's expected, I'm gonna go Tampa Bay twenty-seven twenty-four. I just think that. I just think Tom Brady, right? I mean, Aaron Rodgers has been on a mission all year just because he's kind of owed to prove that his age has no merits on his performance, obviously, because he's looked better than he's looked the past six years. But I think Tom Brady's also on a mission to kind of prove to everybody that the reason why New England was so successful is because of him more so than Belichick. And he's he's shown up in big ways countless times this year, and I kind of expect that to continue. As far as the Buffalo game goes, if Chad Henney gets the start, I'm yeah, going yeah, Buffalo yeah. 35-17. I just, I, just don't, I just don't see a way that Kansas City is going to be able to even keep up with Buffalo if Mahomes doesn't start. But I'm banking on Patrick Mahomes playing, and I think there, to me, I think there's a 1% chance yeah. that he does not play at this point. Um, he passed everything that he's had to pass for the first three days, and they always say that concussion symptoms can show up 48 hours after the initial concussion, so usually Wednesday or Thursday is when you would start to see the signs, and he hasn't seen anything yet, so I'm going to bank that he's playing, and if he does play, I'm going wow. 45-42 Kansas City. I think it's going to be one of those situations where whatever mm-hmm. quarterback has the ball last is going to win. And I really think that's how Buffalo and Kansas City are both going to want to play. They're going to want to go out there and score points and not put the game in their hands. Yeah, for when it sure. Matters. And yeah, I agree. If if Henny is forced to start, I'm sure Buffalo will win handily. Otherwise, yeah, hopefully it'll be one of the best games of the season. That's all the time Cole and I got for you today. Uh, Cole, anything else? Yes, you let's add hope for you know better. Better success for Chicago area sports here in the near future. Maybe every team should take after the Bulls and and look to right the ship. That's that's great advice for uh, Chicago sports fans. And over the next week, we'll continue to monitor the Bears' defensive coordinator search. I know I started kind of writing columns about who they've been interviewing lately. So when we find out more about who the Bears are bringing in, we'll touch more on that yeah, in depth when they make By the way, um, before you close point, out, congratulations to Brandon Staley for getting the Chargers job. Yep, well, Staley. wasn't necessarily him to be a head coach Another, that soon, but I guess the Chargers really like what, they, like what they've seen from him, and uh, hopefully he'll do a great job there. Another classic yep, case of sure. the one that the yeah. Bears like get away. Because I honestly felt that he should have been the one to replace Vic Fangio when Fangio left. But obviously the Bears didn't feel that way. And he ended up following Fangio and then goes to the Rams and turn their defense into the best defensive unit in football this year. So that's just another case of Ryan Pace either not realizing what he has on his own staff or just another case of the Bears just let one get away. Yep, that's how it goes in the NFL. The one that got away. But uh, yep, yeah, take care, soon. and we'll pick up next week.